This podcast is part of the Podbelly Network. Please visit podbelly.com to see a complete listing of all of our other shows. It's about to be a fun ride. Follow along, watch as we slide. Paranormal just hit the lights. Goosebumps all through the night. Mixing just a little bit of twain. That girl sure can't do a thing. Together, hillbillies go insane. Laugh so hard it'll hurt your brain. Podcast you won't ever change. These two here, they got the recipe. Sat on back and listen in to some of our darkest mysteries, eh? Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Stories. And now here's your host. Jerry and Tracy Polly and their dog Ninja. Hey guys, welcome to HHS Midweek Episode 11. Hello, everybody. So this week, we uh, obviously are going to talk about uh, a little place in Canada. Mm-hmm. We don't do a lot of Canadian stories, but we're going to do one this week. Good. We have Leslie Fear on with her Fear of the Week. And she's going to tell us about some strange feet that just keep washing up on the shores of the Pacific Northwest, mainly up in Canada and like up in the Washington mm-hmm. state area. She's going to talk a little bit about that because it's a, kind of a creepy story. It is a very creepy story. And then we've got uh, Lee Solway from uh, Realm of the Supernatural, yeah, formerly so Don't Break the Oath. Yep. He's going to come on. He's got a poltergeist story to tell us that's really cool. That It's actually one I had never heard. Oh, cool. So We like, I mean, Lee's always got some interesting stories. He does. So. He does. And, of course, he usually sends us something for our Halloween episode mm-hmm. and stuff. Yes, he and does. One of one of our very best friends in the podcast business. Like, I, I actually mentioned uh, during the interview, he's one of the few podcasters that I actually talk to several times a week. Yeah. So Yeah, very nice. So let's get started on our story tonight, like I said, to kind of open the show, we've not done too many Canadian stories. So how about we do one about a haunted Legion Hall? Oh, man. Get- it doesn't surprise me, though. It doesn't surprise me either. Um, this one is a little bit different, though. Okay. And I'll tell you why as we get into it. Um, they really don't know the source of these hauntings. Now, we've talked about, um, like, when we did Point Pleasant. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's a good opportunity to bring up that we're getting ready to do a bunch of live shows this year, and almost every one of them are going to be in Legion House. I know. I love it. Or, you know, of that sort. So, really cool. So, the the one we did in Point Pleasant, uh, they felt like it was haunted, and they felt like, one, it's because it was right there on the uh, burial ground of all the soldiers Mm -hmm. from the Revolutionary War. And then at the same time, they feel like there was a lot of people that they were members of the club that felt like, you know, this was their home away from home. Of course. And therefore, that might have been the reason that they just didn't want to leave. Yeah, I can see that. I'm pretty sure that's what it is. So this Legion Hall is is the Billy Bishop Legion Hall. It's in Vancouver, British Columbia. It's the Vancouver branch of the Royal Canadian Legion. It's... uh, considered a museum by many people because of the fact that there's a lot of military memorabilia in there on the premises, which is very cool. Yes. Most of it's Canadian, but there are some artifacts from other countries as well. A bunch of plaques and medals, that type of thing. It was built in 1929, and it was not originally built for that purpose. It was built because there was a rugby team called the Marilonas that were right there in town, and that's what it was originally built for them. 
1936, the Canadian uh, Pacific Railway bought the land and the building. And unfortunately, due to the Great Depression, they missed some payments and the city of Vancouver had to take over the property. Oh, man. In 1947, the Air Force Association bought the building, and that's when it became a veterans club for the first time. Over the next several years, some of the veterans clubs had to consolidate and would eventually become the Royal Canadian Legion in 1958. Now, at the time, this was still an Air Force outfit, but because enrollment had started to be on a decline for, for several years, they decided in 1960 to open up enrollment to all branches of the Canadian military. It was named then the Billy Bishop Legion Hall in 1964 in honor of William Avery Bishop. Now, Billy was a World War I hero. He shot down over 70 enemy planes during his time. So the talk of the hauntings began in the mid-1970s. Back in 2007, a gentleman by the name of John McDonald, he was the public relations uh, contact there for the Legion Hall. He had been a member of the hall since 1982. He said that he first heard about a paranormal activity in 1995. So he did a little bit of investigating and he found out that there was some stories that went all the way back in the 70s, like we mentioned just a few minutes ago. The most active spot is a corner of the club. There's one specific corner. Not so much for what people see, but more for a weird feeling that people get when they're mm-hmm. kind of sitting there. He's, it's possible that this could be because of an artist with unfinished business. Oh, no, seriously. You see, there's a painting <laughs> that's there that's got three members of the King's Troop, Royal Horse Art- Artillery on horseback, towing a cannon, but the painting is unfinished. At least the trees in the background are, because the painter who was painting it, he had to leave in the middle of it. He went back east to visit some family, but he died while he was back east, Aww. so he never got a chance to finish the painting. Well, that's a shame. So maybe the painting um, is just a reminder of unfinished business, as we say. Or maybe the painter just hates the fact that his painting's hanging there without being finished. Right. The light in that corner is one of only two lights in the entire lower level that has its own switch. Everything else is all, you know, flip one, almost all the lights come on. One day, uh, there was a, a... man there uh, is actually a friend of, of McDonald's that we were just talking about. He was visiting. He was sitting in the, that corner and he went up, went to go to the bathroom. He came back and that light was off. He had been doing a crossword puzzle mm-hmm. at the time. He and the bartender were the only ones in the bar at the time. Neither one of them turned it off. The bartender was actually doing paperwork. So that was just one of several weird things that happened in that corner. Most of the patrons will agree that the paranormal activity takes place upstairs. One of the stories that goes way back to the 1970s, it tells of the president of the time, a gentleman by the name of Ted, who was the first one there one morning, and uh, he had just opened up, and he heard people walking around upstairs. Uh-huh. He went upstairs to check it out, but there was no one there. Similarly, 2002, there was another employee who had opened the bar, she came in, she turned off the alarm, all the motion detectors and all that stuff. She said she heard someone hammering upstairs. 
Which was odd because, like we said, she turned off the motion detector and stuff. Yeah. So if there was somebody upstairs, that would have set that off the alarms, it, yeah. but it didn't. She figured it was the archivist who comes in and works on some of the memorabilia we talked about. You know, he'll mm-hmm. touch it up or make sure it's all in good shape. She went upstairs. She's going to let him know that she had a fresh pot of coffee on. This was about 1130 a.m. Nobody was there. She was extremely freaked out. She was so scared, in fact, that by the time that John McDonald got there at 2 p.m., she was still shaking so bad that she could barely pour beer into a glass. Wow. That is... (laughs) You know, and I guess back then they had to wear those heavy boots, so... You know what I'm saying? So that would probably, but, yeah. but somebody this was hammering. hammering. This was yeah, hammering. that's what I was going to say. And apparently they hear hammering quite often here, even still today. Yeah. So that was just one of the instances that we chose to speak about. They've been holding, this is my favorite story right here. They've been holding AA meetings there, Alcoholics Anonymous, since the 1950s. And... There was a gentleman, he's obviously, he'll remain nameless. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know. Oh, right. Hey, hey. Anyways, he'd been a member for the first couple of years after it started up. hmm But he kind of, I'm not going to say he lapsed, relapsed, mm-hmm. but he just quit going to the classes. Okay. In the 70s, he decided that he was going to come back. Hadn't been there for a while. Now, you got to know, back in the 1950s, he was approached by a, a woman named Beulah. And Beulah actually helped start the Minneapolis version of, uh, or the Minnesota's version, I should say, of Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm-hmm. So she was very instrumental in getting that started up. She sponsored a lot of people. Well, that's nice. And he was one of them. So... He decides to come back in the 1970s after not being there for a while. It's been 20 years. A lot of the same members, though, who had been at the group when he first started, were still active and coming to the meetings. Oh, my God. It had been 20 years? 20 years. He sat down, and he had an open seat next to him. Beulah came in and sat next to him. So for the first 30 minutes or so, Beulah just listened to all the different stories, and she nodded her head and, Mm -hmm. and smiled, but didn't really say anything. So then they have a break, like a halftime, so mm-hmm. to speak. They have a break to go get coffee and stuff like that. And uh, this gentleman gets up. He goes to get some coffee. And he's looking for Beulah. He wants to have a cup of coffee with her and just catch up, see how things are going. He didn't see her anywhere. So he asked another member where Beulah was. And at that time, he was told that Beulah died about 10 years <gasps> earlier. No way. Oh, Beulah. It's as if she knew that he, he needed would, her to be yeah. able to start back on the program again. Oh. There's a spot upstairs on the north side of the building that has three windows in a row. McDonald's taken a mediums up there on several different occasions, and he says about more than 60% of the time, the mediums, without being told anything, they see a short woman standing in between the first and second window. Yeah. And to this day, people still hear sounds upstairs from feet dragging to furniture moving to hammering. It's said that there are paranormal occurrences approximately every three weeks, something happens. So the question is, why is it haunted? No one has ever died in this building 
that anyone there is aware of. So it's not that. There is one theory that the building sits on the land that was very close to what they called a Squamish Native American village at one point. And that was before the railway came in and the area was industrialized. Yeah. But that's the only thing that anybody can really figure. Nobody knows. So Bela didn't. She died at her house, I guess. Yeah, she didn't have any. T- apparently, she didn't die there. But Aww, but that Bela. was still. That, well, see, that still makes sense, though, mm-hmm. because that's a place that was close to her. Yes. She mm-hmm. would come there on a regular basis. She would help people. Mm-hmm. That one makes sense to me. Yeah. No one's really sure who the short woman is. Hey, who knows? Maybe that's Beulah. I was going to say, maybe that's Beulah. You know, don't know. Nobody knows who's doing the hammering. Could have something to do with the railway mm-hmm. that went through. I, I don't know. Oh, that's so cool. So, I thought that was a really cool little story. Yeah, I just I, you like know, that. I love doing these little short stories. Like I said, that's like a 10-minute story. Mm-hmm. And they're too small for the, for the regular show. Mm-hmm. And I just, I love that these stories now, we've got a way to be able to tell them a couple of times a week. So I hope you guys enjoyed that. Yeah. So me now, too. without further ado, Adele. We have the last fear of the week that'll be on Wednesday because mm-hmm. it's going to be moving to Thursday after this week. Yes. On all of its own. Leslie on this one is going to talk about some feet. So if you've got a foot fetish, tune in. <laughs> <laughs> now this is an interesting story, and some of you may be familiar with this story. It's it's funny because this is a really popular story in paranormal circles. And when I talked to Leslie about this, she had never heard about it. Oh, so it kind of surprised me. I thought I just assumed she was automatically uh-huh. going to know. So a lot of you probably will know about it. Maybe you've heard about it. Maybe you didn't. But you'll probably at least be familiar with the story. So listen to Leslie. She's in rare form on this one. You are listening to the fear of the week. Hey guys, we are back with the Fear of the Week with author Leslie Fear. Pick up all of her books at Amazon.com. I think uh, you would be impressed if you do. We just got, uh, Leslie, you just sent us a shipment of books to start uh, kind of perusing over. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, your your so, daughter is going to like totally dive into those, I hope. Oh, gosh, yeah. She yeah. She's excited for them. Yeah, well, they're all signed to her, so she might share with you guys, or she might not. I don't even know. Well, if my name's not on it, I'm not looking at it. Is it that simple? No, you need to look at it. Buckle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we will definitely look at it. Yeah. So, yeah, she's very excited. Good. So, Leslie, tonight, you are going to share, fresh off of your last week's medieval torture devices... You're going to share a story that I'm fascinated with. It's the story out in the uh, Canadian area off on the West Coast, uh, Pacific Northwest, about feet that just keep washing up on shore. And I'm assuming you've uh, dug into this situation. I have. And Are you jumped in with me. both feet? <laughs> <laughs> okay, that was bad. Sorry. No, that wasn't that bad. bad. It was actually really funny. No, it was good. It was good. <laughs> Keep it up, keep it up. No, um, it. I had no idea about this story, and as I just told you guys before we started recording, Jerry knows more things than I don't. Okay, so this is the human <laughs> foot discoveries. <laughs> so I did some research, and it's not pretty. 
but I'm going to tell you everything I know. And then we can maybe talk just for a few seconds and then I'll have to go because, you know, I got, I got crap to do. <laughs> so in so, your face. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So human foot discoveries now as of January 1st, 2019. And what is today? Uh, it's January 1st, 2020. That was one year ago today. Yeah. Just thought I'd share that with you. So, as of January 1st, 2019, it's been a year since the last discovery of a foot, which may or may not be a good thing. I'm hoping it's a good thing and nothing else happens, but you know, you never know. Um, 16 feet have been found in the Canadian province of British Columbia and another five f- feet in the U.S. state of Washington. Mm. That's that West Coast, not D.C., the you know washington state over there you know well because you know hey you know some people may or may not know that stuff and and, you know if you don't know geography which you know i i learned all that stuff because i love it but some people just don't care and i get it so let me just explain to you it's on that west coast so um we're gonna dive right in with both feet tracy (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah so yeah hey y'all uh so uh so 21 feet have been found two have been matched pairs and one of them being dna linked to a woman who jumped from a bridge from an apparent suicide so they're kind of ruling out foul play on generally all of the feet because most have not i think most if not all of them have not had those tool marks of maybe somebody severing a foot which makes it even kind of creepier, really. So um, it makes you go, why? So, but there are theories. We'll get there. So, um, but what's kind of crazy is these feet are normally found in sneakers. And they're thought to be responsible for keeping the feet buoyant enough to eventually wash ashore. Hmm. Makes hmm. sense, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Um. And, and they give them, like, protection against the decomposition, um, which I guess they stay relatively intact. I, I assume most of the lovely foot is still intact. Um, but as far as back as 1887, a leg, was, uh, a leg in a boot was found in the uh, Vanco- on a Vanco- Vancouver, Vancouver Beach. So that's kind of strange. But I think it's that something is encasing... The flesh, do you know what I mean? That, that's uh-huh. keeping it, you know, but also the sneakers specifically are keeping it buoyant, if that makes any sense. That's right. what I'm getting from it. Yeah. So the proposed explanations are um, some people who have died in boating accidents or plane crashes in the ocean. And, you know, you don't think about it like, like that, but why wouldn't you see some other parts of the body? Mm-hmm. They're not really sure, but in 2005, four people died in a plane crash near like Quandra Island, and I guess that's off the coast of like Nova Scotia, that area. Mm-hmm. And um, those bodies were never recovered, except a foot that ended up belonging to a female on the flight. So that's different. I, I say Nova Scotia. I, it was Vancouver. I'm sorry, Nova Scotia is different. That's okay. It's that, yeah, but that is yeah. so weird. You think if yeah. it was floating in the ocean, like. Like some kind of fish or something would like gnaw on it at least. 
You know, it is funny you say that because I thought the same thing. It's like, why wouldn't something get it? You know, but Uh maybe it's because um, it has a different smell. It's it's inside a a sneaker that's it's rubber. I don't know. You know, Uh I mean, it doesn't make sense to me. But other factors are like ocean currents. It makes it hard to determine, you know, the floating debris um, that can travel like thousands of miles. Wow. You know, so under like really good conditions, the human body can remain intact in water for like as long as three decades. And I'm like, what are, yeah, so it could be the, the, you know, how deep it was um, when it finally reaches the surface, the salt, all those things can determine. And so they could be like floating around for, for decades. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And it's just so happens that where these specific places are, they wash up on those beaches. I'm sure other things wash up on different other, you know, or other beaches. We just don't hear about those because they're not as close as these beaches are to us or whatever. You know, I'm thinking, I I don't know. I'm thinking that maybe what it is, but, um, Oh, another theory. This is kind of interesting. Um, the feet could have belonged to the people who died in the Asian tsunami on December 26th, 2004. I know. That's crazy. So it's, it's due to the fact that when they, when the shoes came up or, you know, with the feet in them, most of them were sold in or before 2004. Now they're theorizing, but it kind of makes sense. It does make sense because I mean, most people, especially younger people, they don't keep shoes for that long. No, so if some, something no. was washing up last year and it was from 2004, that means somebody would have had to have that shoe for 15 years. That's kind of what I'm thinking. So it, it's kind of kind of a very good theory, but it's sad at the same time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's, it's, yeah. And then one last theory is, you know, that foot that was, uh, that belonged to the woman who had jumped in a suicide. They found another man uh, his foot that was washed ashore and he, they, you know, he, they knew he had depression. They think he jumped from the same Petulo bridge in Westminster, British Columbia in 2004 as well. And they think that her foot and his foot were from, or as a result from jumping from a bridge. So it could be all these different theories, plane crashes, tsunamis, suicides, all those things. Um, they don't think it's foul play. They don't find tool marks on any of these feet. Not that they have found so far. It's just odd that they all wash up in that same general area. It, it really is. And it, we had a lake house when I was growing up. And I remember one specific area of the lake, because it was a really, really, really big man-made lake, lake in, in Texas. It's called Lake Tawakany. Some of your listeners from Texas might know what that lake is. But I grew up on that lake. And on specific t- areas of the lake and in specific times of the year, certain things would would come up like foam, like weird foam. I don't even know what they didn't know what it was. Um, debris from trash or whatever it was, certain things would come up and and it wouldn't be all the time. It would just be certain times of the year and at certain um, times when it was cold or hot or, or whatever. So it's... There's really, I can't explain it either. I, I don't even understand it. But they don't seem too alarmed about it. They're like, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's because it's not their feet. <laughs> yeah, 
okay, not yours. Don't worry about it. So that's that's my uh, human feet discovery. Yeah. Well. I, I thought we saw um, <laughs> one time we were in Louisville and we looked down off of the bridge, over the bridge, and we seen a hand. And we're like, oh, my God, there's a hand in the. What? In the, yeah. So we actually went and got the, we call those Coast Guard, not Coast Guard, but. Uh, yeah, I know what you're talking about, though. But the police that do the water thing or whatever. Right. And we went over and got them because it was like, oh, my Lord. So they got over there. And it was a damn glove with, <laughs> like, a, you were in a doctor's office, and it had been filled with water or something. I mean, it looked so real. But it freaks well, me it, out. It would freak me out. And you know what? The second you didn't do anything about it would be uh-huh. the time that it really, really was a hand, and somebody was yeah. looking for this person, and they've been missing for however many years, and you oh, would have helped a family find their, yeah, their family that's, members. That's so, true. Mm-hmm. So you know, if if you see something, say something, kind of thing. You know, hey, I'm I'm all about it. I am. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. She thought it was Def Leppard's drummer, but turned out it wasn't. <laughs> oh oh God. my God, Jerry! Terrible, terrible. <laughs> well, Leslie, as usual, we appreciate you coming on and doing the Fear of the Week with us this week. I always have a blast, and it's so good to have Tracy back. She is a delight. Thank you. Oh, thank you, honey. I appreciate that. (laughs) Love talking to you. Of course. And uh, I'll see myself out. She's always so fun. She is that, and I would just love to hang out with her for about a week. She kept, she was asking the other day if we were going to be in Fort Worth anytime soon because oh. she lives in the Fort Worth Dallas area. Uh-huh. Like not anytime this year. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, we did that track last year. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And even Houston was four hours away from there. So oh, it's oh like, really? Is it Tex- that far? Texas is so huge. It is huge. Yeah. So. Well, I know we enjoy having her on the show. She's a hoot for sure, and she really knows her stuff. So she does, and and trust me, I know some of these stories that are coming down the pipeline. Uh-huh. It's all some messed up stuff. Oh yeah. So, yay. <laughs> <laughs> With that being said, speaking of messed up, we have Lee Solway. He's not really messed up, but he talks about some messed up stuff. Yeah. And if you can get past the accent, oh, the accent's getting- wonderful. <laughs> I was telling him, I tell him all the time that, because his, you know, it's just like here, you've got different parts of Great Britain and mm-hmm. each each place has got a different accent. Uh-huh. And uh, I just think it's funny uh, listening to him because his accent is definitely a little bit different. So it takes some getting used to. Mm-hmm. So we joke about his accent all the time. But let's listen to Lee. You guys are going to really like this story. I was fascinated by it. Mm-hmm. So I love a poltergeist story, even though this is another one that's really not a poltergeist story. But it's called a poltergeist, so he's just following suit. But we get in that we get into that conversation a yeah, little bit here. You'll yeah. see what I'm talking about. Just like I did with Diane last week <laughs> on whether this is a poltergeist, and just like with, uh, you know, the brothel hell brothel, not brothel. The brothel hell house. <laughs> the brothel might be a different, one, but the brothel hell house. You know. With that poltergeist story, those those are things I don't consider poltergeist by the true meaning definition of poltergeist. So we had like three straight weeks of having that same conversation. So, <laughs> oh, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I could be. Anyway, let's listen to Lee real quick. Hey, guys. I am back with a, uh, a special guest that we've had on the show a couple of times. It's been a while, though. I've got uh, Lee Solway from Realm of the Supernatural. Lee, thanks for coming on, buddy. No problem. Merry Christmas. Same to you guys. Uh, Lee, if you can't tell, has some sort of an accent. 
Uh, he's actually he's actually from uh, over in Great Britain, and uh, there's about a five hour time difference, so we have to do this thing very early on my end to keep it from being too late on his end. Uh, but it's always great to have you on, Lee. So thanks for coming on board. Anytime, anytime. Obviously, you host Realm of the Supernatural. Uh, this show goes back quite a while now. Uh, it's about as about as long as what our show's been going on. Originally, it was under a different name, Don't Break the Oath, which I thought was a badass name. Yeah. Uh, I like the new one, too, and the new logo and everything is, is really good. So tell everybody out there, if they're unfamiliar with your show, what your show basically is. Uh, well, my ba- basically, um, the show is a paranormal show. Uh, obviously, we encompass different things uh, from time to time that are maybe stray outside the paranormal. But in general, I suppose you'd say it was a paranormal show. We have guests on, we have authors on. Uh, most of the time, we just chat uh, about a particular event um, and give our opinions on it. I think that's what we try to be a little bit different to different. You know, obviously, there's lots of paranormal shows, including your own. But we try and be a little bit different where we try and give our opinions um, about each story. Even if we don't necessarily agree with each other, uh, we still give you an opinion. Well, let me jump into this real quick because some of you in here may have listened to the show before. Uh, but if you haven't listened recently, there have been a few changes to the show. Uh, tell me a little bit about those, Lee. Yeah, Andy's uh, obviously the most significant change to the show. He's left in order to pursue other things, uh, spiritual in nature, of course. Um, and that's not just a bottle. But, um, <laughs> yeah, so uh, in his place comes in uh, Finch, um, well, I think he's doing a, a decent job so far, so long may that continue. Uh, the, the plan is, obviously, yeah, that you, Andy you will work drop well in together. from time to time. Well, thank you. Um, but it's, you know, uh, Andy... Uh, if it, if he comes on, he comes on. It's uh, it's no big deal. It's uh, you know he's, the door's open essentially. When he's free, he'll be back. So he ain't gone technically forever, but in the meantime, me and the me and the Fincher are rocking and rolling. So, so with that being said, you guys, uh, well, you today because Finch isn't with us today, but no, he's packing. You've got yeah, you've got a story that. Sounds fascinating to me. I don't know the story, so I'm as interested in listening to this as uh, the listeners out here will be. Uh, you, but you've got a poltergeist story to tell us about. I have, yeah, the Cardiff poltergeist. Um, obviously, when me and you sat down and we, we spoke about doing this show, uh, I wanted to do something from the British Isles, as it were, uh, just because I know like your listener base is predominantly American. Actually, mine is as well, so that doesn't make a difference, I suppose. But um, <laughs> I wanted to do something from Britain so that maybe you guys hadn't, hadn't heard before. Um, and it got me thinking of British cases, poltergeist cases, essentially. And I know you've covered quite a few uh, over the years. So one that stuck out to me was the Cardiff poltergeist. And it, it doesn't really get a, enough attention, for me, bearing in mind when you when we start getting into it, the amount of witnesses to this, um, it's got all your classic poltergeist uh, elements, uh, but it's got the witnesses as well. Um, and, that, and I know early early days back in uh, don't break the oath days. I'm sure we covered this at some point, but you know, going back years now. 
So, yeah, I thought I'd retell it for you tonight. Awesome. So would you like me to begin? I would like you to begin, middle, and end. Okie dokie. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see how this goes. Okay, so this is set in Cardiff, which is in Wales, uh, back in the 1980s. Okay, and it involves a shop, which is predominantly a mower services. In fact, it's called Mower Services. And they repaired, uh, you know, your lawnmowers. It, these are your household lawnmowers and your ag- agricultural ones. Um, or, you know, you, you ride on mowers, that kind of thing. Any, mm-hmm. so, any sort of mowers they basically repaired. They did a few automobiles as well, but it was predominantly um, for lawnmowers. And they've been going for about 15 years at this point. And towards the back end of that time, they started actually selling mowers as well. So it's a thriving business, and it was run by three main people, really. John Matthews, his wife, Pat, and his brother, John. Okay. So this has been, you know, a thriving business for a long while now. Uh, Nothing strange has happened. They've been in this premises a long time. But this is the thing with Poltergeist cases, you know. All of a sudden, just one day, things change. Okay, you, you get the traditional ones where there's a bit of renovation goes on or there's, um, you know, an adolescent teenager, you know, a, a female normally, that brings it on. But in this case, it just come out the blue. Okay, so the first thing they noticed is John and Fred were working on a mower one night and they heard a rock just tumbling down the roof. They had a corrugated iron roof on this warehouse if you imagine this warehouse it's like um it's a little tiny it's not massive by any means it's probably i don't know 30 feet by 30 feet it's kind of like you know it's set in between two buildings it's back down an alley off the main road and it's got like a little courtyard out the front where they keep all the mowers and then the the warehouse is set back there it's got a corrugated roof and they hear this stone tumbling down the roof obviously the first thing they think is it's kids so John goes outside to have a look, and there's nobody out in the courtyard. Obviously, that's the only place a stone could come from. So he thinks that's a bit unusual. He walks back in the door, and as he walks back in the door, another rock lands on the roof. So his brother says to him, you know, get out there and sort them kids out. And he goes back outside, and there's nobody there. So he comes back in, and he says, well, there's just nobody outside. And, you know, Fred says at this point he thought the guy was going nuts. You know, he said, well, there's got to be somebody out there. You know, rocks don't just fall out the sky, (laughs) you know, which is, you know, fair enough. Okay, so that was like the first thing they noticed. And slowly, as the days progress, the activity starts to pick up. Uh, I think Fred was quoted as saying something along the lines of, um, it was at this point where the spirit seemed to move in. Um, So... Starts with the usual thing. So the first thing I noticed was things, objects being moved. So they put an object down. Say they was working on a mower and they put the the wrench down. um, Went to pick it back up, it'd be gone. Or they'd be walking through the warehouse and and come into this cold spot. Um, The usual things that you associate with poltergeist activity. But at the time, they was just brushing it off. Strange smells started to appear. Okay, Uh, Mostly the smell of burning. Um, you get this in a lot of part of the guys' cases, especially when like the gin uh, appears. You get this smell of burning. At the time, they knew something was strange was going on, but they didn't. 
feel it was um, a menacing presence or anything like that. They thought it was quite um, childlike in its behaviour. You know, it played like childish pranks. Obviously, things mm-hmm. going missing, this kind of thing. So they, they were quite amused by it all. The only thing that really worried them was the fact that they didn't want people to, um, potential um, clients, to witness any of this. Um, they didn't want to get a reputation as obviously being haunted. They thought that might be bad for trade. Right. <laughs> okay. Actually, as the story progresses, that actually goes the opposite way. But um, at the time, they was pretty sure that, that this wouldn't be a good good for business. You know, that, that happens quite often, Lee. So many people are afraid, especially with like hotels and stuff like that, that, oh, no, we don't want that reputation. And at one time, that was probably true. But in, in today's age, probably in the last 25 years, if you've got a haunted hotel, I mean, that's your ticket to, you know, a gold mine in most cases now. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. You can sell that now, can't you? Mm-hmm. Um, but it, yeah, I mean, the amount of hotels, I mean, look at the energy that's been in hotels and and most of them have had a death of some description and, you know, a lot of them will be haunted. And yeah, again, like a lot of them don't want people to know about that. Some thrive on it, um, but others, I, you've got to imagine it goes on in majority, you'd say. But yeah, was, I would think. That was the same for these guys, though. So one of the things that was, see, with three or four people you know, working in the shop, it was easy for them to say, oh, you've done it. Oh, it was him, you know I mean, that kind of thing. But one of the things that started occurring where they really couldn't pin it on anybody was they'd lock up on a night time, uh, go home. Next morning, they'd come back, open up, and they'd, they'd find money, um, notes pinned to the wall, you know, like pushed into cracks in the wall or even on the ceiling where you couldn't even reach. They'd be just pinned, like stuck to the wall, uh, stuck to the ceiling. These, you know, pound notes. Um uh, that was very difficult for them to to pin on anybody that worked in the, in the premises, if you like. Um, they decided to conduct a test, okay, to get to the bottom for the bottom of this once for all, because John was insistent that there was something going on, okay, paranormal in nature. Fred was, you know, a big, tough Welsh guy. You know, he didn't believe in all this and. And he said, "Right, I, I tell you what. Let's have a, let's sit down and let's do a test." So everybody that was there at the uh, the mower services was asked to be part of the test. Anybody that didn't feel they wanted to be part of it was allowed to leave. Okay. So most people left. So it just left John, Fred, and another work colleague. They all stood by a table. Now this test, Jerry, lasted for two hours. Okay. <laughs> yeah. They thought it was just going to be like a um, quick sort of. Is anybody there? Nothing would happen. That's an end to it kind of thing. But that wasn't to be the case. They stood round the table, so they all put their hands flat on the table so nobody could be accused of uh, moving any objects, anything like this. And they asked... First of all, they asked for the keys because when they were going to lo- uh, lock up, they, they couldn't find his keys. So he said, what have you done with my, you know, what have you done with my keys? And the keys just shot across the floor. <laughs> okay, so they all sort of looking at each other now, thinking, oh, well, "Hang on, there's something going on here." Uh, one of the brothers says, "We really should be taking notes, um, you know, keeping track of all this." And as as he says that, a pen just drops onto the table. <laughs> <laughs> but like, great, where's the paper? <laughs> yeah, indeed. Uh, well, I'd start asking for more money because I think that's. Uh, I, you know, I don't <laughs> yeah, think I'd want to get rid of something that was giving me money, but it's not clear actually if it was just money from the till or not. I think I presume it was money from the till, but 
Um, so this pen drops on the table, so then they're really, you know, getting a bit alarmed here. But they persist with the test. And like I say, this went on for two hours. Them asking back and forth for objects and that. But what the guy showed you was some degree of intelligence. And this this comes apparently later on when the, a, a professor gets involved. But they was asking for items. So they'd ask for a spark plug, okay? And then a spark plug would appear. They'd ask for a nut and a nut would appear, this kind of thing. So it wasn't just random objects. And again, they was taking it in turns to going around the table, each person asking for a different object. So if it was concealed in somebody's pocket or anything like this, then the chances of them having that object on them at the time and just, you know, being able to drop it on the table like some sort of magic trick um, is obviously diminishing as each object appears on the table. They, they finish this test and John goes home and he, you know, he, uh, sorry, uh, Fred goes home and he, he tells his wife what's just happened, you know, and something really going on there. And it just kept... Things just kept happening all the time, and they gave the poltergeist a name at this point because he was playful, and at this point he was just doing childish little uh, pranks, this kind of thing. They actually gave him the name of Pete the Poltergeist, or Pete the Polt. Um, and again, with poltergeist cases, this happens all the time, doesn't it? For some reason, they give it a name, you know, and whether that increases its energy, its life force, you know, it's difficult to say, but... Things did ramp up from there. Okay, so the conductor of the test knew something was going on. And through a friend of a friend, they managed to get hold of a guy called... Um, well, it was actually a professor, David Fontana. Okay, he was a parapsychologist, but he had a penchant for the paranormal. And he actually gave lectures on it. Um, so through a friend of a friend, they managed to contact him. And he agreed that he would come and... Um, investigate if you like but on the proviso that he would attend when he wanted to attend okay so this wasn't he wasn't saying right I'll be there 9 o'clock Monday morning what he was trying to eliminate is the any hoax going on okay so he he was was just going to come when he felt like it so if there was anybody in there that was hoaxing this, they wouldn't know, oh, I've got to set something up for nine o'clock, that kind of thing, okay? So he took that that out of the equation straight away, which I think is actually quite clever. So he turns up, the first day, he's never been there before, he arrives. And as he walks in the door, a little pebble comes, he stood in the foyer bit, you know, where the desk is and that, waiting to be seen. And a little pebble comes out of nowhere. There's nobody else in the room with him. Just shoot, you know, just lands at his feet. And he, you know, he steps back in astonishment as uh, John pops his head through. He says, oh, you must be professor-like. He says, yeah, I am. He says, uh, that, just, that little pebble just appeared out of nowhere. John says, that's just Pete welcoming you. That's what he does. <laughs> uh, so that was his first experience. And he was, you know, he was really intrigued now. So he spends a few hours just walking around the workshop, watching the guys work and investigating different rooms. And he was able to determine that there was a... An epicenter, if you like, a particular spot in this warehouse seemed to be where the force was coming, where the force was strongest, if you like, and that's the this place where he spent most of his time uh, conducting a few different experiments. One of the things he noticed the most is that objects seemed to move around there. You could actually see them, but one thing 
were these objects moving? He never saw them in flight. Okay, so if it would be a rock or a bunch of keys or whatever the object was that was moved, he never saw it actually mid-air. He only ever saw it landing on the ground, which, again, rules out a hoax because you can't throw an object that, that, that vanishes mid-air, you know? If somebody, right. if somebody throws a bunch of keys, you're going to see that bunch of keys flying across the work, workshop. Um, but they never saw that. This particular part where he thought the epicenter was, you get a cold spot was predominantly there. Um, you know, even if it was blazing sunshine outside, he actually conducted this investigation for nearly two years. So this was not like, um, you know, a week's thing, and then oh yeah, there's a poltergeist here. He actually went back there for no near on two years. This epicenter, though, he did notice something really strange about it. Or I think quite impressive actually he noticed that if you were to throw an object into there the object that you threw in there would catapult itself back almost like it was um you know there was some intelligence there that was throwing it back to you or some sort of um you know like it was rebounding off something hmm. okay so it wasn't just hitting the wall and coming back it was being flung with some force and obviously your direction but again at this point nobody's taking this to be sinister in any way shape or form and they, you know, they're getting on with the work the, 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 the word is getting out around town now which they didn't really like but uh, they appeared in a few papers this kind of thing another witness and obviously like I say a lot of the people that came to the shop witnessed this you know they'd be waiting for the mower and they'd see things so this was getting around now but thieves broke into the mower services and uh, the insurance brokers sent along a guy called Gareth Lucas to uh, obviously assess the damage. And he, he walks in and he says, where did the uh, thieves get in? And they got through this like, little side door at the back there. So they pointed him to the direction. Didn't tell him anything of the poltergeist. And he goes into this little back room where this door was broken. And he's assessing the damage. And he actually felt a stone hit his boot. And so he looks around and there's nobody in the room with him. And he thought that was strange. But he just carried on assessing the damage and another stone hits his boot. And he starts looking around and he's thinking, well, that's twice that's happened now. And as he stood there, he actually sees this pebble just rolling around the ground. A rock just, just you know, in this little room, just whizzing across the floor. <laughs> so he runs out and he says, then what's going on in this place? You know, there's rocks. And they just say, well, it's Pete the Poltergeist. And he says, what? You know, what? <laughs> so obviously they have to have a bit of a conversation with him and calm him down. Um, but, you know, he, he, he you know, finished his job and he got out of there as quick as he could. But again, this is just another witness to all this, okay? Okay, so things take a little bit more of a sinister turn. Okay, and this, this... As they usually do. As they usually do, yeah. You're kind of waiting for that, aren't you? But um, doors started to be bolted. Okay, so they'd walk outside the warehouse uh, to, you know, to pick up a part or whatever, and when they go back, the door would be locked from the inside. Um, obviously, this is quite annoying, and when you try and run a business, this is quite frustrating. Um, and that started to get a, a little bit beyond the joke, you know. The stones and things like this, they could, you know, they could live with. But when they started being locked out of the premises and having to call out locksmiths and this kind of thing, um, <laughs> and explaining to the locksmith, I know, I know this is the tenth time you've been this week, but we've got a poltergeist. Um, you know, it started getting a bit tenuous. So 
Yeah, do you have the poltergeist discount? <laughs> yeah, I know, yeah. But um Fred and his brother John, okay, working late on this mower. They did it done the next day. So they're working late into the night. They're the only two people in the workshop. And something caught caught Fred's attention on the top shelf of this uh, unit. If you imagine it's got this rackings, you know, a lot of racking in there. So they're working on the floor on this mower, and out the corner of his eye, he spots something on this shelf. So he says to John, he says, you know, whatever you do, don't turn round. So John immediately turns round, you know what it is. And um, he doesn't see it. And he says, did you see him up there? And he says, no. And he says, he was just out there. He said, who was? He said, Pete. And he says, what do you mean? He said, there was a little boy. This is the first time we see him, so. This little boy just sat on the shelf up there. Anyway, with that, half a house brick just appears and just narrowly missed John's head. Okay, so... It was almost like the the poltergeist didn't like that he'd been seen. Um, okay. Although Fred does say that when he first saw him, he was kind of waving at him, you know, like a playful little wave. He describes him as being thin, grey in complexion, and he had a face where you couldn't necessarily see the features. Okay. You knew he had the features, but you couldn't see them. Um... It, he was dressed in uh, tattered clothing, um, and he, you know, he, he he looks like he was from a different era. Okay. At this point, they started to um, feel that the 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 energy had changed, if you like, and things were going a little bit more towards the nasty side. Um, the guy who lived next door, just uh, you know, out of interest, was actually a Baptist church next door. And he had actually had the same things happening at his premises. He'd been working late into the night and they'd had stones thrown at the window. He'd go outside expecting kids to be there and there'd be no one about. He'd go back inside and it'd continue. And so this went on for, you know, for half an hour sort of thing, him going out and back in and that. And when he read in the papers that the next door had had this poltergeist situation going on, he put two and two together. But this is Reverend Mike Fuller. And I'll give you a little quote here what he said when he was interviewed about the situation. He said, he believes that we live in a a visible and seen world, okay, with a supernatural dimension wrapped around it, which kind of makes a lot of sense, you know. It does. And, you know, this is a reverence saying this, but he couldn't explain what what was happening. Um, You know, stones would be in the window he'd literally go to the window and stones would be in the window and there's nobody in the in the you know downstairs in the in the grass down below um which you know be brilliant to see but but you know that's that's a fairly common theme i've heard a lot of different stories uh where it, the phenomenon was stones basically just hitting the house uh, from out of nowhere so that is a fairly common theme uh, in in certain stories, yeah, I'm pretty sure that in the in the uh, Armhurst um, case, that was a similar thing. Was like bricks were hitting the roof and that. Yes, yes, that yeah. was the one I was thinking about. Yeah. And I think uh, I think Richard McLean Smith did a version, uh, an episode on that one, and I, I remember that being the main thing. There is they had people coming, and there was like so many rocks falling at one point. It almost looked like it was hailing or snowing. Yeah, yeah, so. I don't know why that's significant, but it just seems that that does occur in a lot of these cases. But 
a lot of you know a lot of rumors got around now, and they really felt that it was time that they left the premises. Okay, the business was still growing, um, and they probably needed a bigger premises anyway. And it was a good time to cut ties with a place, and they really thought that would be the end of it. But as you know, with poltergeist, sometimes they get an attachment to a person rather than a building. And the poltergeist, Pete, decided he'd follow Fred. So, first things he started noticing in his home was he'd come in and he'd have pictures on the wall. Um, but the pitch, the, not, not the frame, the picture actually inside the frame, behind the glass, would be crooked. So that almost the picture had been spun round inside the glass. Um, and the first time he saw it, he thought, that's unusual. And then it kept happening. And then, obviously, his wife was there, and they was both saying, well, there's something strange going on here. The other thing that they noticed was spoons started to pair upstairs. You know, it's not a place you normally keep spoons. And they go upstairs on a night time to go to bed, and there'd be spoons on the landing. Um, other objects started to be moved and disappear for periods of time. One, one in particular object was this dish it was an old old dish um which had been like you know passed down through the generations this kind of thing um just a you know a big dish what you'd put i don't know pudding you know that kind of thing but mm-hmm. it was quite decorative and the family had had it a long time and and this particular object would go missing for days and then reappear somewhere uh you know extraordinary um and that seemed to be one of his favorite items fred and pat got fed up with the situation, okay? They'd, they'd move premises now, and they hadn't gone there, but he'd come with them. So they con- they contacted a local medium psychic, and she came along. She said, there's definitely a presence here of a little boy, and he's trying to get your attention, this kind of thing. But they, she said, is he moving objects around? And they said, yeah, he moves uh, various objects, this dish in particular. And she advised them to break the dish, okay, to almost break the break the spell if you like break the hold and um, before they moved house there was to break this dish and they did they broke this dish which was you know not nice because it was like a family heirloom right but <laughs> <laughs> but they 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 broke it and moved house and as as far as we know since they moved nothing's followed them and that was the end of pete the poltergeist interesting mm. So let me ask you this, because this will be two, by the time this airs, this will be two weeks in a row uh, on, on a similar subject. So you deal with paranormal all the time as far as these stories. My understanding of poltergeist is typically, you know, it's, it's the, the child that is going through some type of puberty or adolescence or yeah. something, and, and usually they manifest energy in the house. But this story... Is, is listed as a poltergeist. Uh, when we did the story on the Bothell Hill House, he listed his as a poltergeist or a demon, as some people called it. And uh, we just did a story with Diane Student last week that was of the McKenzie poltergeist. And oh, in yeah. Yep. None, of the, none of those three cases does that seem like that fits the... Uh, definition of poltergeist from what my understanding of what a poltergeist is. What's your thoughts on on that? Yeah, uh, for me, I, I always believe that poltergeist is more of um, is is a haunting of a person, um, you know, rather than a place or an object, this kind of thing. But I, I really do think that it, the poltergeist itself manifests from the inner workings of your own mind. 
Um, Same here. You know, not necessarily like a tulpa where you, you know you. Well, I mean, yeah, I guess it's along the same lines of a tulpa, but um, this is something you can create without knowing. Okay, I think that's the the fundamental uh, element to this. You don't necessarily know you're doing it, but you are projecting, you know, thoughts and feelings into the into the ether, and that energy is creating various things to happen. Um, you know, whether that's a hormonal change, whether there's something going on in your body at the time, whether there's stress levels um, in your body can create this, I don't know. But there seems to be, for me, poltergeist, I know we t- tend to, you know, obviously it means noisy spirit and we tend to think of it as a ghost, don't we? But I don't necessarily think it's a ghost. No, I think it's, I think this is produced by, you know, you, you, if you want to say the body's got its own psychic phenomenon. Um, I know we all have this sixth sense. Um, but you know, maybe it's just some element of that. That's kind of my belief on it. That that's what I think too. So based on on your perception of that, would you consider like the Mackenzie poltergeist or this uh, case? Would you actually consider those poltergeists, or would you consider that just a haunting? I think it's a haunting. Yeah, I think yeah. you know when people are going to places where they expect there to be. Um, you know things going on of you know as you know a spiritual nature i think sometimes that that anxiety that that fear that um wonderment if you like i think that can build into an energy that you can't necessarily control yep i agree lee i want to thank you brother for coming on and spending some time i i've, I've said this before but i'll say it again I have a ton of friends in the podcast and community, but there are only a couple that I converse with several times every single week. You're one of them. You're one of my very best friends in this industry, and I want to thank you for that in uh, front of all the audience. Well, thank you for embarrassing me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now, I mean, it, it's an honor to speak to you. I mean, you are... You are what you are. You are a legend in the field, and uh, you know I'm, I'm grateful that we we are friends for sure. Yeah, I don't know about the whole legend thing. No, no, I think you are. I think you're a modest, I modest Who legend. Am I to argue. <laughs> <laughs> look at your well, da- look at your downloads. But no, yeah, you know. But I do spend ninety nine percent of my time doing nothing but playing those things on loop. So that might have something to do with it. Oh, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> Well, anyway, so thank you, Lee. Tell everybody how they can uh, find your show and get a hold of you on social media. Yeah, it's uh, easy enough. Just type in Realm of the Supernatural podcast anywhere, and we should appear. Yep. So you got a, you got some groups and stuff on social media that'll tell people about those. Those are kind of fun. Yeah, mostly just Facebook. Uh, we are on Twitter, but uh, I've gone off Twitter a little bit recently. Same um, here. Yeah. So we are on Facebook. We do do polls from time to time, which tend to be quite illuminating um but yeah you can find us there just type in realm of supernatural podcast hangout and you'll find us on facebook and yeah by all means if you want to send us a message you want to get in touch then we're there 24 hours a day seven days a week you can find us and guys if you haven't listened to the show before this was a really good um example of what the show is this is the kind of stories they cover this is the way they cover it i like i said usually you know you've got uh uh, somebody else to bounce off of uh, back and forth. So it's it's kind of fun conversation back and forth. But if you haven't listened to Realm of the Supernatural, subscribe today. You'll be happy you did. Yeah, you will. All right. Thanks, Lee. <laughs> I'll talk to you soon. Cheers, matey. 
As always, Lee never disappoints. He's always such a fun listener. to. He is. He is. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing. And we appreciate that. Well, guys, that concludes this edition of the uh, midweek episode for this week. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And we'll talk to you on Sunday. Love you.